HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. For more information, visit www.rt11.com. Today's program is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardin.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network, broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. This is Dana Cowan, your host on Speaking Broadly. Welcome to my brand new season. Very excited to have with me today someone who has been so moved by the plight of the refugees. She not only quit her job, she spent time going to culinary school in preparation for the next big thing. I want to welcome Carrie Brody from Emma's Torch. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so thrilled to be here. I am so enamored of what you've done in such a short time. I mean, Emma's Torch you founded about a year ago? Yeah, exactly. It's been a really, really quick turnaround and quite a whirlwind over the last year. And I'm going to try to put into words what your what your mission is, and then I want to know, like, Wow. How did you come up with this? So you're basically a not-for-profit social enterprise where you train refugees in the culinary industry and help them get jobs and start a new life. Exactly. Um, yeah, that's exactly what we do. We The idea came about because um, this universal experience of cooking can be such a powerful tool. And it's not just about the connections you make around the table, which are amazing and beautiful, but it's also a way to create a new life, to have a real livelihood where what you bring to the table quite literally matters. So it can be an amazing tool for empowerment, which is really the impetus behind our work. Okay, but it was, I feel like the seeds were sown 
so long ago in your life and getting to know you even a little bit better, it seems like they started generations ago. Can you talk about your family history and how that might have impacted your desire to do this kind of work? For me, this idea of serving others has been something that my parents and my grandparents really instilled in us from a young age. You know, it's the most amazing thing that a human being can do to leave this world even just a tiny bit better than how we found it. Um, my family history, um, like so many other Jewish families, my great-grandparents um, fled Lithuania during the Holocaust, um, and they found refuge in South Africa, where they built a new life and experienced what it is to be new and to be strangers in a strange land. But they also saw you know, so many things in the society that they didn't want that was not right and not a part of a culture they wanted to be with. And so my parents... Um, left South Africa and built a new life here in the United States. Um, and they're very proud of that new life and proud of the ways in which this country can and should really help help others. You know, what we stand for is really welcoming in the stranger. And that's been a part of my life forever. So, so you've been uh, sort of, your family's been strangers at least twice. What is it about what was going on in South Africa that they were upset about and wanted to reject in building a new life? So I think like many other people, they saw, you know, the apartheid as an evil way of running a society. It is antithetical to any sense of morality and ethical behavior. And so for them, that was something that they could never accept. They could never live with. And for better or worse, you know, the United States stands for the opposite of that. It stands for this integration. It stands for the idea that we are a melting pot and we don't always live up to it. But it is, you know, I think it's apropos that it's a uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Day that, uh, you know, he says that the the path, the arc towards, you know, the arc towards equality um, is long, but it bends towards justice. You know, we, we have this North Star that we're striving towards, um, which is something that, my family's always discussed, discussed as, as has my community, and that's been really, really important for my entire life. Living in this particular moment in time or where there are so many people who do not seem to value um, the notion of integration, uh, diversity, melting pot, it's almost like, you know, on a, a child's plate, like they don't want their vegetables to touch. Um, you know, what's your reaction to that? And has that made the work of Emma's Torch more difficult? When I was initially conceptualizing Emma's Torch, when it was just, you know, this crazy idea in the back of my head, this wasn't the political reality I thought we'd be living in. Um, I thought that we were going to be seeing with promises from leadership of letting in more people, of striving to do better. And it, it feels in some ways like there's been a step back but I think um, we're called Emma's Torch. We're named after Emma Lazarus, who is the woman who wrote the poem on the Statue of Liberty. And she was asked, when she was asked to write this poem, she said, we're getting the statue. We need something to inspire this country to donate, to preserve the statue. And that encapsulates what it means to be American. And for her and for the words that she penned, what it means to be American is to welcome in the stranger. That is who we are. It's what makes us great. And I think that though, you know, you can look to a lot of examples, unfortunately, recently where there are people pulling us in a different direction, um, you only have to turn around. And, you know, the day after the Muslim ban came out, I was surrounded by thousands of New Yorkers marching, marching in Battery Park from all walks of life. And that's, you know, I've never felt more American than I did that day. And I think that that's also what we're seeing. We are seeing that people are 
taking ownership over what they believe this country should do, and they're fighting more, they're running in elections more, they're pushing more, um, because they really still believe in it. Let's talk about how you took ownership of this idea, because you you went to you went to Princeton, and then you um, got a master's in government at Johns Hopkins, and then you had a, a couple of incredible jobs. Was this notion in your mind all that time? Growing up, I always loved to cook. My fondest memories are, like so many people, um, cooking with my mother and my grandmother and welcoming people to our table, and I loved that. That's always been my happy place. Um, but academically, I really thought I was going to pursue a, a career in politics. I, I graduated with a degree in Middle Eastern Affairs. I focused on political communication and speech writing and was really lucky to work at incredible places, um, most recently at the Human Rights Campaign. And, but at the, the whole time, there was this, this idea in the back of my mind kind of needling at me. And so I thought I could scratch it by, I um, worked at a homeless shelter. I volunteered at a homeless shelter on my way to work a couple of mornings a week, or I taught cooking classes with friends that we prepared meals for local homeless shelters. But it didn't quite get there yet. And um, eventually my husband, you know, we were talking about what we wanted to do with our lives, careers. He turns to me and says, you know, you keep talking about this crazy idea someone should do. You know, who are you waiting for? Whose permission do you need? <laughs> so uh, I bet he's biting his tongue now after all that's led to. <laughs> uh, but you um, had this idea and acted on it when you were 25? Yes. Did you ever feel like, oh, God, I should, I should know more. I should you know, I should wait, I should get more resources before launching? Every day. Um, I think that for me, the biggest struggle is there's not enough time in the day. And there's just only so much that one person can know. And I think I've been lucky in that I've, I've uh, kind of been like a spider creating a web of far more intelligent people than myself who can advise me. But it's definitely was a concern. And I spent a lot of time thinking, you know, who am I to do this? What who do I think I am? You know, there is a degree of hubris that goes with it. Um, but I, I think that the way I've at least dealt with that is finding those experts, finding those advisors, so that it's not just the Carrie Brody show. It's actually this is what it looks like when a community takes ownership over a problem and tries to create change in their small corner. And so how hard was it to develop the program that Emma's Torch became uh, there are some models. I'm on the board of Hotbird Kitchen. I know that you had done some work there where uh, it's also workforce development uh, for low-income individuals through the culinary arts. Were there models you were looking to? Yes. I looked to a number of models. I felt almost like I was doing case studies, and it was it was actually a lot of fun because I got to go and talk to people who inspire me personally and ask them, you know, tell me tell me what you do. And that was really, really rewarding. Wait, who was the most inspiring? I'm just so curious. Like, what did you learn in that process? That sounds great. It was such a treat. And I w love to do it even now. Whenever I can find someone, I love to pick their brain. Um, for me, one of the first people I spoke to was a woman named Lori Wexler, who, incidentally, whose husband had been one of my first bosses when I was an intern of college. Um, and she founded Sunflower Bakery, which is a program in Washington, D.C. that does baking and pastry training for adults with developmental challenges. And she just is an incredible woman. She is no nonsense. She's the type of woman who, when she sees a problem, she fixes it. And she talked me through the first steps of founding the organization, but also the challenges that are not 
the high level, you know, here's how we strategically think, but also the challenge of how do you get buttercream to consistently be applied? <laughs> um, and so she was amazing. Um, but I have to say, everybody I spoke to, I mean, I spoke to the the founder of Hot Bread Kitchen, who I look back on our the notes from that meeting constantly. I, I wrote down everything and typed it up in my spreadsheet. And those have really been the true guides for me because without those people, I would have never figured it out. So Jasmine Rodriguez, who's at uh, Hotbread, what was her? What was the takeaway from from that? It's a good question. We've had a long conversation. I think she and I spoke very early on, and her advice was to keep it simple and keep on the mission. And actually, because of that conversation on my wall above my computer, I have our mission statement re- written out, and whenever I think of deviating or whenever I'm like, oh, I don't know if we should do X, Y, or Z, I remember her saying, keep it simple and stay on the mission. And that was really, has really kind of carried me through, which has been very, very helpful. And uh, how do you find the people who become your students? And When I was first starting out, I knew that I didn't know a lot. So I met with a lot of leaders in refugee resettlement. And those initial relationships where we were talking about what does this population need, what works, what doesn't, those people are also now referring in clients to our program. And so those friendships that I've created with a lot of these caseworkers make it so that they're referring in clients, they know what we're looking for, and they also can be around to bounce back ideas. You know, this student would be great, but is there a way to get them more English training? Or this student would be great, but what do you think about X? So that's been very helpful, and that's how people find out about us. So through the refugee resettlement. And is there a robust refugee resettlement uh, community in New York City? There is. There is. A lot of the main, the larger organizations, there's about nine refugee resettlement agencies. Most of them have offices and headquarters in New York because of in addition to resettling refugees, there's just also a lot happens in New York. And so it's, it's a good idea to have a presence here, um, as well as in Washington, D.C. So when people come to interview, you had an amazing first year. You had uh, 100% placement of your graduates. That's extraordinary. Now it's a small number of graduates. There were eight of them. Mm-hmm. But still, you could have had you know 50% attrition, and that would have been normal. How did you choose the individuals and see within them the the light of the future? The individuals that were in our program this summer are some of the most inspiring people I've ever met. And they really shown in the interview process and shown in the sense that they really wanted to be there. That was the the big thing that differentiated who we took and who we didn't. It was the people who needed to be there. They wanted to be there and were willing to work hard and saw it as a chance to achieve not just something in the short term for the duration of the program, but to really set up new lives. Um, And so we were very lucky with our our first group of students. We're immensely proud of them. I know that uh, on your website, you describe many of them. Can you just talk us through the life story of one of those students? I think the listeners will find it really, it's so heartwarming. Definitely. One thing I will say is that we, as a blanket rule, you know, we don't, when our students walk in, they are chefs. We don't pry and we don't ask them to relive some of the hardships. That being said, each of our students does have a really beautiful and heartwarming story. So I will paraphrase. um, But uh, one of our students is a really young woman um, who fled from Saudi Arabia, fleeing the types of oppression and the limits placed on her life by the fact that she's a woman. And so 
you know, she got to the U.S. and it was the first time she could go outside unescorted without something blocking her vision where she could think about what it means to have career goals. Um, and so she showed up at the program and really struggled in the beginning. She, she, it took her a long time to understand things, but she subsequently not only graduated from her program, she's been promoted twice. Um, she's now working at a very high-end restaurant. And even more exciting than that, she recently emailed me. Um, she's moved in with another one of our students. She moved out of the housing, where, which wasn't great housing. She moved into great housing with another student. Um, and she's contemplating starting her own small-scale food business and wanted to get advice on it, which I immediately sent her books. And <laughs> I'm so proud. So that was one of our, our really heartwarming stories. And we're really I, I went to eat at the restaurant where she's working recently, and it was like visiting a, somebody who's just really made it. She was just shining. With that, we're going to pause and take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking to Carrie Brody about the food of the refugees and the future. Be right back. Thank you. The following program has been brought to you by Route 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Route 11 Potato Chips dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate. An incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Route 11 Potato Chips believes comfort food should be just that. Know where your food comes from. For more information, visit rt11.com. The following program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential small hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. Welcome back to Speaking Broadly. This is your host, Dana Cowan. Today, we are talking about a very timely subject, which is refugees, workforce development, opportunities, what is the meaning of being an American? And my guest is Carrie Brody. Carrie, welcome back. Thank you. So I want to know about the, the restaurant, the, the training that you give these uh, students who go through the program. They're, they're, they have a paid apprenticeship to actually cook. And are they cooking food from their homeland? Is that what they're bringing forward? Um, are they cooking, you know, hot dogs and hamburgers? What are they making? Our students in our curriculum are really geared towards the idea of what skills they need to access the culinary job market. And that can mean different things for different students. Some go into high-end restaurants, others go into small-scale food production. But at its core, what we are teaching is not all that dissimilar than what your typical culinary school is teaching. We're teaching how do you dice potatoes so that when you go on a job interview and they ask you to dice a potato, you can do it. <laughs> um, but even more so, when our students go, they've already worked in a restaurant. They know how to do it, and they know how to do it at scale. Um, when we are creating our curriculum, we meet with a number of restaurant 
leaders and employers to find out from them what they're looking for so that it goes back to inform what our curriculum is made of. So you went to culinary school with this specific goal in mind. Uh, Some people do go to school with the goal in mind. I kind of went to school hoping that I could get through to school and then get to the other side of school. But you went knowing that you wanted to be able to create Emma's Torch, which probably, did you have a name before you began? We did have a name. Right before I started culinary school, we switched to Emma's Torch as the name because I had a long list of terrible names beforehand. (laughs) So um, when you were in culinary school, you did a lot of trails and went into a lot of kitchens. So that gave you the opportunity to see uh, what chefs, you know, uh, were looking for in the people who work for them. What did you learn doing those trails? And in what, what was your favorite kitchen? What was the most stellar kitchen? I was very lucky to get to trail in quite a few restaurants, and I am just a blanket statement of gratitude to every chef and sous chef who who let me hang out for a day, who let me come and experience it, because I learned so much. Um, For me, my externship experience as a graduate was at Lafayette, and I worked in their bread baking department, and I got to work with some of the most incredible people who were interesting and total nerds about the science of bread, and I learned a lot from them. I also learned a lot about myself. I was kind of used to an educational experience that was very book-driven and very research-driven, and I can write a paper. But can I make bread perfectly on the first try? Not at all. And the patience of my educators was really astounding, and it's something that I try and emulate because that level of patience and willingness to teach over and over again is something that's really hard. You mentioned a lot that you're lucky, and I... uh I'm a fan of luck, but I feel like luck isn't something we count on and luck is something we make. So how do you make your luck? Because you've just said, you know, you're lucky with choosing the students. You're lucky that you got to go on these externships. You're lucky that you've been so successful. Um, If you back it out, you know, what are the ingredients that together make this cake of luck? I do talk about luck a lot because I want to be very aware and very clear that there's nothing all that special about me. There's no reason that I could do this and someone else couldn't. And I don't say that out of fake modesty or something. I say that out of the fact that to make something like this, it takes a village. And so I say it's luck to be surrounded by people who are special, who are amazing, and who when we can pool those resources and pool those skills, we can build something that feels almost magical because it it shouldn't work. This shouldn't be able to exist, and it does, and it does because of all those special talents that so many people along the way have brought me. And so while it's me sitting here right now talking about this, and really I'm so proud of the work that we have done, but it really is a we. So I talk about luck as really, I guess, the confluence of the amazing people that I've met along the way. So I guess if I flipped it another way, your version of luck is that you um, are a good listener and you're good at asking questions and you're good at asking for help because that allows you to create this web and to be a, you call yourself a spider-in-chief, which of course, (laughs) as having been an editor-in-chief, I'm amused at the idea of a spider-in-chief. So maybe maybe that's what it is. It's your ability to look to others and not put yourself above all else that creates this um, amazing sense of luck for you. But I think that you also have in your heart this empathy. And 
the empathy is born of generations of struggle and the empathy is born of, you know, choices that you made when you would go, um, you know, and give food to a homeless shelter or make that choice on your way to work. But I think at the moment in this country, we have a national empathy crisis. And I'm wondering, do you have any thoughts about like addressing this national empathy crisis? That's a really interesting point, and I'd never thought about the the empathy crisis. And I think it's probably because I do have the luxury of having a lot of people in my life with this extreme sense of empathy. But I hear what you're saying. I think that I don't know if it's an empathy crisis or if it's an empowerment crisis, because I think the empathy is there. Um, we just had lunch with two incredible young women, um, one of whom is your daughter. And I was just astounded by this idea that they knew what they wanted to do and had a sense of, here's how I set myself up with these incredible educations, with these abilities to do it. And here's how I'm going to leave my mark. And that's that's empathy. But I think sometimes we lose the empowerment. We lose a sense of agency. We care deeply about issues, but we don't know how to do something about them in our day-to-day life. And I think that's where the crisis is, that we've forgotten that we have this power and that, you know, a small group of dedicated people can make a difference. It's the only thing that ever has. And I think that reminding people of the power that they have is the only way to overturn it. And then, in turn, empowering people who for way too long have been cut out of the conversation. Um, so I think that's really where, where at least my beliefs are. I was interested in your thoughts about... Um the powerless bystander and how right now we there are many of us who are trying to be active and there's many of us who are bystanders to some very egregious behavior how do you think you rock the bystander that's something I think about a lot and I actually talk to my sister who's a physician about that a lot because I say to her you're solving a problem but you know that there's so many others How do you get through the day? How do you get through the day knowing that you're giving somebody medication to solve this ailment, but throughout their life, they're going to need X, Y, and Z? And she always has said to me, you fix the problems you can. And I think that that is at least why I have felt so empowered to have this crazy idea and see what happens with it. But I think that what we've seen in the last year is there's been these moments that have rocked the bystander. It's the reason why for so many people last January was the first time they'd ever marched in a political march. It's the reason why people are running for office in new numbers. And it's the reason why people are speaking out about terrible things happening in different industries. And so I hope that the only way to rock the bystander is not by having these atrocities. But I do think that maybe that's the power of social media and of Twitter and of access to information that it it becomes more likely that we'll be rocked, that we we know what is happening to refugees. And so now we have to do something. Although I think the, you know, the battle we're in the middle of, which is terrifying, is um, what's real and what's not. And every, every conversation can't be recorded and replayed. And uh, it's always one person's word against the other. But the Martin Luther King quote that you said earlier, I think is great. Um, solace that there is a bend in history towards justice. And so 
one needs to think about that. But one also needs to think every day about the stories that we're telling. And you have had two positions before this one where you were really the storyteller. You were the storyteller for the Israeli embassy and you were the storyteller for the human rights campaign. As a storyteller and as a media person, how did you tell the stories so that they would be heard? When I was both at the Israeli embassy and at the human rights campaign, the big driving impetus behind why I got up every morning and why I believed in the work we were doing was a theory of change where when you know someone and when you recognize their humanity, that's how social change happens. That's how the human rights campaign could go from this tiny organization 30 years ago, 35 years ago with a crazy, we're never going to live in a country with marriage equality, to the position we're in now where I could stand on the, the steps of the Supreme Court crying like everybody else was crying in that moment where there was recognition that love is love. And that's, for me at least, I always try and tell those stories. I think that there's a, a joking line, if it bleeds, it leads. Those <laughs> negative stories exist and they're out there. And I definitely, I worked um, in communications during military action and wars and, and it was painful. Um, but I like to, but I think the human is actually, is really the story. Because when we read a newspaper, we can suddenly f understand what it is to be in Afghanistan or being Guinea or understand what's going on in Burkina Faso only if we realize that the human in Burkina Faso is not that different than the human right here. And uh, you picked uh, countries, places where your students have come from. And so naturally my next question was, is, you know, you are creating the stories for these individuals. And as part of the enterprise of Emma's Torch, it, what is the communications and how can you take those humans and make them more uh, accessible, their stories more accessible and help make change that's even greater than the one life? It's something that we actually struggle with because on the one hand, these stories can change how people think about refugees and how people think about these people coming to our community. On the other hand, I never want any of our students to feel like they have to be a flag bearer for the refugee community as a whole or for all people from that country. And so it is striking that balance but what I love to do is talk to our students about how they can share their stories, that it's not me finding their stories and broadcasting it, but it's how can they, even if it's just in their new jobs, talk in the kitchen about what it means to be a chef from, let's go with Guinea. What does it mean to be a chef from Guinea? And what does it mean to be building a new life here? And what are the very real struggles that they're facing? And so my goal over time is that our students will feel empowered to share their stories and realize that their stories and their voice matters. Um, but that's definitely a work in progress and something that we're continuing on. It seems like there would be an opportunity if the students connected to the food of their countries to, to share the stories of the food and the person together. But you're as you say, you're training people to have jobs and be part of a larger organization. You're not training people to be the, you know, to be the United Nations of food at a potluck. Definitely. And I think that there's value in both. Um, for us, we really do focus on that job placement element. But at the same time, we learn a lot from our students and from what they have to say about food and what they can tell us about the best way to extract flavor and color from saffron. 
that changes how we cook. But we also want them to be put forward in the best way possible. And right now you do you that your last graduating class was eight students. Scale is uh, an important element in changing the world, right? You get up every morning, you want to change eight lives, but you really want to get up in the morning and change a thousand lives. So when you look at the future and think, how can I make the biggest impact? Uh, what do you think? Scale is scale and sustainability are my two words for 2018. We want to build on our foundation in a sustainable way, and we need to scale up, and we need to scale up pretty radically. So this year, we're going to be opening a new location in the first quarter of the new year, and we're going to be scaling up our, the number of students we can accept to a point where we'll be accepting 50 students a year, which is still not thousands, but it's getting there. And at, after that, the sky's the limit, but we, that's, the, that's the, the prize that we are keeping our eye on. We need to be scaling up. We want to do more. We don't want to have to turn away students because we don't have the capacity. And right now, I think you said you have a, a waiting list. I mean, there's lots of people who'd like to find jobs in culinary. Do you think that culinary is particularly interesting to the refugee population? And if so, why? I do. I think that it is a really interesting phenomenon where it is a artistic and commercial field where the language barriers are relatively low. And so what we're seeing is for the refugee community, it's the idea that they can be in a profession where, yes, they're receiving training tools to have the technical skills, but their creative elements and their creative selves can be brought to work. It's also a great field for people who may or may not have ever worked outside of the home, but from come from cultures with a huge emphasis on food and an emphasis on feeding large families. So it's a way of training, in particular women, um, to access financial stability. So I think that that's why it's such an interesting career trajectory for the new members of our community. I also think it's so great to be able to point to the fact that what is American food? American food is the food that immigrants and refugees brought here. Um, so that is also a really great tool of empowerment to say that this isn't something new. We're just facilitating this and making it that much easier for you so that we get something out of it. We get an enriched <laughs> culinary identity. What type of food did you eat when you were growing up? My family is South African, so we ate a lot of South African pseudo-British food. We're also Jewish, so a lot of challah and, and matzo ball soup and that type of food. But I uh, am very lucky. Oh, I, I keep on saying that word. Uh, <laughs> but I am. I'm very blessed to have both of my grandmothers are phenomenal cooks. One actually published a cookbook in South Africa and the other worked as a caterer and just creates the most delicious, beautiful food and really taught me everything she knows. And she's still to this day of any chef I've met has the highest standards. So uh, I'm always trying to meet them. We haven't quite gotten there yet. <laughs> so you have high standards in the culinary world. Did your family also set high standards in your everyday life? You you're, you're a bookish, you said you were bookish, and you're certainly overeducated, so. <laughs> <laughs> or well-educated, sorry. No, that's a great, a great point. I'm trying to find the right words. My, my father in particular, but both my mother and my father have a real, really great way of explaining it. It's not that we had to get straight A's or that we had to go to top schools. It was that we had to be able to look them in the eye at the end of the day and said that, say, with all honesty, I did my best. And so if that meant getting an A or if that meant getting a B, you just had to be able to say, I 
gave it my all. And I think that work ethic and that emphasis on education, which is not rare amongst um, immigrant communities, or in, in particular, the Jewish community has a very high emphasis on education, but it was, you're put on this earth, you have to be the best you you can be, and we're only going to be disappointed. We won't be mad, just disappointed if you don't. <laughs> <laughs> the, the lever of guilt is um, <laughs> a very powerful one. And when you said to your family, I know I've had this great education. I know I have this, um, you know, I have an amazing job right now. Um, but I'm going to give it all up. How did you feel that took guts on your part? And what was their reaction? That was probably one of the scariest conversations I've ever had. Felt a little bit like I was saying I'm going to backpack across the, I don't know. But it, and that would be terrible. <laughs> I don't know. I think it, it, for me, it was suddenly going from a point of I was married, I had a stable job, which I loved. There was everything was going really well, and it was it was rocking the boat. And saying that to my parents was somewhat scary to say. You know, this is the path we all thought I was on. I'm deviating. Uh, what made it less scary was that I have an incredibly supportive husband, and my parents were also supportive. They. They're South African, and South African parenting is a lot more stern in some ways than other forms of parenting. And so there was a lot of pushback. You know, you, you have to do your research. Have you thought this through? How are you thinking this through? And those questions actually made my concept stronger, knowing that it wasn't just, oh, if that's what you want to do, great. But it was more, if that's what you want to do, do it really well. And do it from a point of education and don't do it from a point of I know best. And so those initial, albeit scary, conversations really helped inform what the organization became. And I really value that it forced me to spend a lot of time before I could say I run a nonprofit saying, I have an idea and I want your advice. So right, they're, they're the first advisors um the first little connecting strings of your spider's web. <laughs> exactly. Um, and... They must be so proud now. I think so. <laughs> I'm very, very happy. They've been very supportive. And I think they're proud of me and my siblings. We've all kind of found our way in the world and are working together in different things. And so they're, they've been really supportive um, and have come up here to, to see that, see what's happening. So you mentioned um, that we had lunch with my daughter uh, Sylvie and her friend Catherine and I wanted them to meet you because there's really only nine years between you and they do have a good sense of um, what they want to do or they think they do they want to have an they both want to have an impact in the world and I think the impact that you've had and the stand that you've taken at such a um, you took the stand at a very young age and you know life moves on. But um, what is the advice that you give to that next generation that is living in um, a more fraught time in so many ways, you know, than perhaps you had 10 years ago? That was very long-winded. Let me just say, well, what advice would you give to a, a 17, eight-year-old person who is about to graduate from high school and wants to make a mark and doesn't exactly know how yet? I'm always the one asking people that question, saying, what advice can you give me? It's So I last year I had the immense honor. I spoke at my high school's graduation. 
which was really nice. And I got the chance to actually do exactly that. And so I, I asked a lot of other people, what's your advice for me? <laughs> um, but what I ended up saying to them, and I stand by this, is to remember that you are the person driving your own story. We, we read books, that's how you get through school, where there is a beginning, middle, and end. And that end's already written before you start reading it. But now you're going out into the world and you, you're the one with the pen. And so you get to choose what path that takes. And that's a huge responsibility. It also can be really scary. And so what I often say to other people asking me for advice is to find the people that are going to help you direct your route, but also to know that you, you have the power. You get to decide what comes next and, and that it's a road. I mean, oh, wow, I'm doing a lot of cliches right now. <laughs> Sorry about that. But it's true. When I was, in, when I was 17, I knew exactly what I was going to do. And I what was it? I was going to get a degree in Middle Eastern Affairs and move to Israel. And I was going to work in public policy, and I was going to be part of what was going to be the peace process. It's not what I ended up doing. It's not what I think my life will look like. But even, but every kind of little turn along the way gave me more tools that have ended up being helpful here. So I think being able to, to deviate is also probably a good skill to have. And what about crushing obstacles? Because I think that that is, in addition to having the vision, the confidence, and the empowerment, the crushing obstacles is either the first or the next most important thing. So I recently read a book called Grit, where they talk a lot about obstacles and how do you overcome them and actually what are better, kind of what are the best indicators for success? How do you guess how somebody's going to do And so I think that those obstacles and overcoming them can be really scary and can be really debilitating. And I've definitely, for better or worse, we've had a lot of obstacles. Most of them haven't been very public. So it's been easier for me to do it. But at the same time, every time an article comes out about us, any time that something else happens in the public space, it becomes a little bit scarier. You know, we're climbing higher. It means there's, there's farther to fall. Uh, but the best way, at least for me, what I've developed is my strategy for overcoming obstacles is there's this great book that later became a movie called The Martian. My husband's an an astrophysicist, so (laughs) bear with me. Uh, So the whole premise is Matt Damon's character is stranded on Mars, and the entire book is him getting off Mars. And oftentimes obstacles feel like that. It is, how do I get off Mars? I don't know. Where do you even begin? But Matt Damon breaks it down to, how do I have food tomorrow so that tomorrow I can continue thinking about how to get off Mars? And so my to-do list, I renamed my Mark Watney's name, the character, list. So with all these obstacles, there's the, there's the Mark Watney list. How am I going to get off Mars? And I have uh, one of my mentors likes to point out, anytime I call her with the new, this is the end, I don't know what we're going to do obstacle, she reminds me, you know, a month ago, remember that other obstacle? Seems like you got through it. You know, good luck with that. So it's a good, good to have those people, too, to, to keep you in check when the obstacles may seem crazy, but you will get through them. And with that, we're going to close out today's um, podcast, Speaking Broadly. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, Carrie, for joining me today. Thank you, Sylvia and Catherine, for inspiring us, and Vitor Hirsch, the amazing engineer of the day. And all of you for listening. Send me questions. Send me people you'd love to hear me talk to. Uh, send me feedback. You can find me at FW Scout on uh, Instagram and Twitter. And Carrie, how are people going to find and support MS Torch? 
You can check us out at emmastorch.org or we're on Instagram and Facebook as Emma's Torch Food. So hope you'll see us there. Thank you for having me today. Great to have you. Have a great week, people. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.